Chapter 26 Entering his own room on the upper floor, Henry placed the manuscript on his table, open at the first leaf. His nerves were unquestionably shaken. His hand trembled as he turned the pages. He started at chance noises on the staircase of the hotel. The scenario, or outline, of the Countess's play began with no formal prefatory phrases. She presented herself and her work with the easy familiarity of an old friend. "'Allow me, dear Mr. Francis Westwick, to introduce to you the persons in my proposed play. Behold them, arranged symmetrically in a line. My lord, the baron, the courier, the doctor, the countess.' I don't trouble myself, you see, to invest fictitious family names. My characters are sufficiently distinguished by their social titles and by the striking contrast which they present one with another. The first act opens... No, before I open the first act, I must announce, in justice to myself, that this play is entirely the work of my own invention. I scorn to borrow from actual events... And what is more extraordinary still, I have not stolen one of my ideas from the modern French drama. As the manager of an English theatre, you will naturally refuse to believe this. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters except the opening of my first act. We are at Hamburg, in the famous Salon d'Or, at the height of the season. The Countess, exquisitely dressed, is seated at the green table. Strangers of all nations are standing behind the players— "'venturing their money, or only looking on. "'My lord is among the strangers. "'He is struck by the countess's personal appearance, "'in which beauties and defects are fantastically mingled "'in the most attractive manner. "'He watches the countess's game "'and places his money where he sees her deposit, "'her own little stake. "'She looks round at him and says, "'Don't trust to my color. "'I have been unlucky the whole evening.' "'Place your stake on the other colour, and you may have a chance of winning.' "'My lord, a true Englishman, blushes, bows, and obeys. "'The countess proves to be a prophet. "'She loses again. "'My lord wins twice the sum that he has risked. "'The countess rises from the table. "'She has no more money, and she offers my lord her chair. "'Instead of taking it, he politely places his winnings in her hand.' "'and begs to accept the loan as a favor to himself. "'The countess stakes again and loses again. "'My lord smiles superbly and presses a second loan on her. "'From that moment her luck turns. "'She wins, and wins largely. "'Her brother, the baron, trying his fortune in another room, "'hears of what is going on and joins my lord and the countess.' Pay attention, if you please, to the Baron. He is delineated as a remarkable and interesting character. This noble person has begun life with a single-minded devotion to the science of experimental chemistry, very surprising in a young and handsome man with a brilliant future before him. A profound knowledge of the occult sciences has persuaded the Baron that it is possible to solve the famous problem called the Philosopher's Stone, His own pecuniary resources have long since been exhausted by his costly experiments. His sister has next supplied him with the small fortune at her disposal, reserving only the family jewels placed in the charge of her banker and friend at Frankfurt. The countess's fortune, also being swallowed up, 
The Baron, has in a fatal moment, sought for new supplies at the gaming table. He proves, at starting on his perilous career, to be a favorite of fortune, wins largely, and alas, profanes his noble enthusiasm for science by yielding his soul to the all-debasing passion of the gamester. At the period of the play, the Baron's good fortune has deserted him. He sees his way to a crowning experiment in the fatal search after the secret of transmuting the baser elements into gold. But how is he to pay the preliminary expenses? Destiny, like a mocking echo, answers, How? Will his sister's winnings, with my lord's money, prove large enough to help him? Eager for this result, he gives the countess his advice how to play. From that disastrous moment, the infection of his own adverse fortune spreads to his sister. She loses again and again, loses to the last farthing. The amiable and wealthy lord offers a third loan, but the scrupulous countess positively refuses to take it. On leaving the table, she presents her brother to my lord. The gentlemen fall into pleasant talk. My lord asks leave to pay his respects to the countess the next morning at her hotel. The baron hospitably invites him to breakfast. My lord accepts, with a last admiring glance at the countess, which does not escape her brother's observation, and takes his leave for the night. Alone with his sister, the baron speaks out plainly. "'Our affairs,' he says, "'are in desperate condition and must find a desperate remedy.' Wait for me here while I make inquiries about my lord. You have evidently produced a strong impression on him. If we can turn that impression into money, no matter at what sacrifice, the thing must be done. The countess now occupies the stage alone and indulges in a soliloquy which develops her character. It is at once a dangerous and attractive character. Immense capacities for good are implanted in her nature, side by side, with equally remarkable capacities for evil. It rests with circumstances to develop either the one or the other. Being a person who produces a sensation wherever she goes, this noble lady is naturally made the subject of all sorts of scandalous reports. To one of these reports, which falsely and abominably points to the baron as her lover instead of her brother, she now refers with just indignation She has just expressed her desire to leave Hamburg. When the baron returns, overhears her last words, and says to her, Yes, leave Hamburg by all means, provided you leave it in the character of my lord's betrothed wife. The countess is startled and shocked. She protests that she does not reciprocate my lord's admiration for her. She even goes the length of refusing to see him again. The baron answers, I must positively have command of money. Take your choice between marrying my lord's income in the interest of my grand discovery or leave me to sell myself and my title to the first rich woman of low degree who is ready to buy me. The countess listens in surprise and dismay. Is it possible the baron is in earnest? He is horribly in earnest. The woman who will buy me, he says, is in the next room to us at this moment. She is a wealthy widow. She has the money I want to reach the solution of the great problem. 
I have only to be that woman's husband and to make myself master of untold millions of gold. Take five minutes to consider what I have said to you, and tell me on my return which of us is to marry for the money I want, you or I. As he turns away, the countess stops him. All the noblest sentiments in her nature are exalted to the highest pitch. Where is the true woman, she exclaims, who wants time to consummate the sacrifice of herself, when the man to whom she is devoted demands it? She does not want five minutes. She does not want five seconds. She holds out her hand to him, and she says, Sacrifice me on the altar of your glory. Take a stepping stones on the way to your triumph, my love, my liberty, and my life. On this grand situation, the curtain falls. Judging by my first act, Mr. Westwick, tell me truly, and don't be afraid of turning my head. Am I not capable of writing a good play? Henry paused between the first and second acts, reflecting, not on the merits of the play, but on the strange resemblance which the incidents so far presented to the incidents that had attended the disastrous marriage of the first Lord Mountberry. Was it possible that the Countess, in the present condition of her mind, supposed herself to be exercising her invention when she was only exercising her memory? The question involved considerations too serious to be made the subject of a hasty decision. Reserving his opinion, Henry turned the page and devoted himself to the reading of the next act. The manuscript proceeded as follows. The second act opens at Venice. An interval of four months has elapsed since the date of the scene at the gambling table. The action now takes place in the reception room of one of the Venetian palaces. The baron is discovered alone on the stage. He reverts to the events which have happened since the close of the first act. The countess has sacrificed herself. The mercenary marriage has taken place, but not without obstacles caused by difference of opinion on the question of marriage settlements. Private inquiries instituted in England have informed the baron that my lord's income is derived chiefly from what is called entailed property. In case of accidents, he is surely bound to do something for his bride. Let him, for example, insure his life for a sum proposed by the baron, and let him so settle the money that his widow shall have it if he dies first. My lord hesitates. The baron wastes no time in useless discussion. Let us by all means, he says, consider the marriage is broken off. My lord shifts his ground and pleads for a smaller sum than the sum proposed. The baron briefly replies, I never bargain. My lord is in love. The natural result follows. He gives way. So far the baron has no cause to complain, but my lord's turn comes when the marriage has been celebrated and when the honeymoon is over. The baron has joined the married pair at a palace which they have hired in Venice. He is still bent on solving the problem of the philosopher's stone. His laboratory is set up in the vaults beneath the palace, so that smells from chemical experiments may not incommode the countess in the higher regions of the house. The one obstacle in the way of his grand discovery is, as usual, the want of money. His position at the present time has become truly critical. He owes debts of honor to gentlemen in his own rank of life, 
which must positively be paid. And he proposes, in his own friendly manner, to borrow the money of my lord. My lord positively refuses, in the rudest terms. The baron applies to his sister to exercise her conjugal influence. She can only answer that her noble husband, being no longer distractedly in love with her, now appears in his true character as one of the meanest men living. The sacrifice of the marriage has been made, and has already proved useless. Such is the state of affairs at the opening of the second act. The entrance of the countess suddenly disturbs the baron's reflections. She is in a state bordering on frenzy. Incoherent expressions of rage burst from her lips. It is some time before she can sufficiently control herself to speak plainly. She has been doubly insulted, first by a menial person in her employment, secondly by her husband. Her maid, an Englishwoman, has declared that she will serve the countess no longer. She will give up her wages and return at once to England. Being asked her reason for this strange proceeding, she instantly hints that the countess's service is no service for an honest woman since the baron has entered the house. The countess does what any lady in her position would do. She indignantly dismisses the wretch on the spot. My lord, hearing his wife's voice raised in anger, leaves the study in which he's accustomed to shut himself up over his books and asks what this disturbance means. The countess informs him of the outrageous language and conduct of her maid, my lord not only declares his entire approval of the woman's conduct, but expresses his own abominable doubts of his wife's fidelity in language of such horrible brutality that no lady could pollute her lips by repeating it. If I had been a man, the countess says, and if I had had a weapon in my hand, I would have struck him dead at my feet. The baron, listening silently so far, now speaks. Permit me to finish the sentence for you, he says. You would have struck your husband dead at your feet, and by that rash act you would have deprived yourself of the insurance money settled on the widow, the very money which has wanted to relieve your brother from the unendurable pecuniary position which he now occupies. The countess gravely reminds the baron that this is no joking matter. After what my lord has said to her, she has little doubt that he will communicate his infamous suspicions to his lawyers in England. If nothing is done to prevent it, she may be divorced and disgraced and thrown on the world with no resource but the sale of her jewels to keep her from starving. At this moment, the courier, who has been engaged to travel with my lord from England, crosses the stage with a letter to take to the post. The countess stops him and asks to look at the address on the letter, she takes it from him for a moment and shows it to her brother. The handwriting is my lord's, and the letter is directed to his lawyers in London. The courier proceeds to the post office. The baron and the countess look at each other in silence. No words are needed. They thoroughly understand the position in which they are placed. They clearly see the terrible remedy for it. What is the plain alternative before them? disgrace and ruin, or my lord's death and the insurance money. The baron walks backwards and forwards in great agitation, talking to himself. The countess hears fragments of what he is saying. 
he speaks of my lord's constitution, probably weakened in India, of a cold which my lord has caught two or three days since, of the remarkable manner in which such slight things as colds sometimes end in serious illness and death. He observes that the countess is listening to him, and asks if she has anything to propose. She is a woman who, with many defects, has the great merit of speaking out. Is there no such thing as a serious illness, she asks, corked up in one of those bottles of yours in the vaults downstairs? The baron answers by gravely shaking his head. What is he afraid of? A possible examination of the body after death? No, he can set any post-mortem examination at defiance. It is the process of administering the poison that he dreads. A man so distinguished as my lord cannot be taken seriously ill without medical attendance. Where there is a doctor, there is always danger of discovery. Then again, there is the courier, faithful to my lord as long as my lord pays him. Even if the doctor sees nothing suspicious, the courier may discover something. The poison, to do its work with the necessary secrecy, must be repeatedly administered in graduated doses. One trifling miscalculation or mistake may rouse suspicion. The insurance offices may hear of it and may refuse to pay the money. As things are, the baron will not risk it and will not allow his sister to risk it in his place. My lord himself is the next character who appears. He has repeatedly rung for the courier, and the bell has not been answered. What does this insolence mean? The countess, speaking with quiet dignity, for why should her infamous husband have the satisfaction of knowing how deeply he has wounded her, reminds my lord that the courier has gone to the post. My lord asks suspiciously if she has looked at the letter. The countess informs him coldly that she has no curiosity about his letters. Referring to the cold from which he is suffering, she inquires if he thinks of consulting a medical man. My lord answers roughly that he is quite old enough to be capable of doctoring himself. As he makes this reply, the courier appears, returning from the post. My lord gives him orders to go out again and buy some lemons. He proposes to try hot lemonade as a means of inducing perspiration in bed. In that way he has formerly cured colds, and in that way he will cure the cold from which he is suffering now. The courier obeys in silence. Judging by appearances, he goes very reluctantly on the second errand. My lord turns to the baron, who has thus far taken no part in the conversation, and asks him, in a sneering tone, how much longer he proposes to prolong his stay in Venice. The baron answers quietly, Let us speak plainly to one another, my lord. If you wish me to leave your house, you have only to say the word, and I go. My lord turns to his wife and asks if she can support the calamity of her brother's absence, laying a grossly insulting emphasis on the word brother. The countess preserves her impenetrable composure. Nothing in her betrays the deadly hatred with which she regards the titled ruffian who has insulted her. "'You are master in this house, my lord,' is all she says. "'Do as you please.' 
My lord looks at his wife, looks at the baron, and suddenly alters his tone. Does he perceive in the composure of the countess and her brother something lurking under the surface that threatens him? This is at least certain. He makes a clumsy apology for the language that he has used. Abject wretch. My lord's excuses are interrupted by the return of the courier with the lemons and hot water. The countess observes, for the first time, that the man looks ill. His hands tremble as he places the tray on the table. My lord orders his courier to follow him and make the lemonade in the bedroom. The countess remarks that the courier seems hardly capable of obeying his orders. Hearing this, the man admits that he is ill. He, too, is suffering from a cold. He has been kept waiting in a draft at the shop where he bought the lemons. He feels alternately hot and cold, and he begs permission to lie down for a little while on his bed. Feeling her humanity appealed to, the countess volunteers to make the lemonade herself. My lord takes the courier by the arm, leads him aside, and whispers these words to him. Watch her and see that she puts nothing into the lemonade. Then bring it to me with your own hands, and then go to bed if you like. Without a word more to his wife or to the baron, my lord leaves the room. The countess makes the lemonade, and the courier takes it to his master. Returning on the way to his own room, he is so weak and feels he says so giddy that he is obliged to support himself by the backs of the chairs as he passes them. The baron, always considerate to persons of low degree, offers his arm. "'I am afraid, my poor fellow,' he says, "'that you are really ill.' The courier makes this extraordinary answer. "'It's all over with me, sir. I have caught my death.' The countess is naturally startled. "'You are not an old man,' she says, trying to rouse the courier's spirits. At your age, catching cold doesn't surely mean catching your death. The courier fixes his eyes despairingly on the countess. My lungs are weak, my lady, he says. I have already had two attacks of bronchitis. The second time, a great physician joined my own doctor in attendance on me. He considered my recovery almost in the light of a miracle. "'Take care of yourself,' he said. "'If you have a third attack of bronchitis, "'as certainly as two and two make four, "'you will be a dead man.' "'I feel the same inward shivering, my lady, "'that I felt on those two former occasions. "'And I tell you again, "'I have caught my death in Venice.' "'Speaking some comforting words, "'the baron leads him to his room. "'The countess is left alone on the stage.' She seats herself and looks towards the door by which the courier has been let out. "'Ah, my poor fellow,' she says, "'if you could only change constitutions with my lord, "'what a happy result would follow for the baron and for me. "'If you could only get cured of a trumpery cold "'with a little hot lemonade, "'and if he could only catch his death in your place.' "'She suddenly pauses, considers for a while, "'and springs to her feet,' with a cry of triumphant surprise. The wonderful, the unparalleled idea has crossed her mind like a flash of lightning. Make the two men change names and places, and the deed is done. Where are the obstacles? Remove my lord, by fair means or foul, from his room, 
and keep him secretly prisoner in the palace, to live or die as future necessity may determine. Place the courier in the vacant bed, and call in the doctor to see him, ill, in my lord's character, and if he dies, dying under my lord's name. The manuscript dropped from Henry's hands. A sickening sense of horror overpowered him. The question which had occurred to his mind at the close of the first act of the play assumed a new and terrible interest now. As far as the scene of the Countess's soliloquy, the incidents of the second act had reflected the events of his late brother's life as faithfully as the incidents of the first act. Was the monstrous plot revealed in the lines which he had just read the offspring of the Countess's morbid imagination? Or had she, in this case also, deluded herself with the idea that she was just inventing when she was really writing under the influence of her own guilty remembrances of the past? If the latter interpretation were the true one, had he just read the narrative of the contemplated murder of his brother, planned in cold blood by a woman who was at that moment inhabiting the same house with him? While, to make the fatality complete, Agnes, herself, had innocently provided the conspirators with the one man who was fitted to be the passive agent of their crime. Even the bare doubt that it might be so was more than he could endure. He left his room, resolved to force the truth out of the Countess, or to denounce her before the authorities as a murderess at large. Arrived at her door, he was met by a person just leaving the room, the person was the manager. He was hardly recognizable. He looked and spoke like a man in a state of desperation. "'Oh, go in if you like,' he said to Henry. "'Mark this, sir. I am not a superstitious man, but I do begin to believe that crimes carry their own curse with them. This hotel is under a curse. What happens in the morning? We discover a crime committed in the old days of the palace.' The night comes and brings another dreadful event with it. A death, a sudden and shocking death, in the house. Go in and see for yourself. I shall resign my situation, Mr. Westwick. I can't contend with the fatalities that pursue me here. Henry entered the room. The countess was stretched on her bed. The doctor on one side and the chambermaid on the other were standing looking at her. From time to time she drew a heavy breath, like a person oppressed and sleeping. "'Is she likely to die?' Henry asked. "'She is dead,' the doctor answered, "'dead of the rupture of a blood vessel on the brain. "'Those sounds that you hear are purely mechanical. "'They may go on for hours.' Henry looked at the chambermaid. She had little to tell. The countess had refused to go to bed and had placed herself at her desk to proceed with her writing. Finding it useless to remonstrate with her, the maid had left the room to speak to the manager. In the shortest possible time, the doctor was summoned to the hotel and found the countess dead on the floor. There was this to tell, and no more. Looking at the writing table as he went out, Henry saw the sheet of paper on which the countess had traced her last lines of writing. The characters were almost illegible. Henry 
could just distinguish the words first act and persons of the drama. The lost wretch had been thinking of her play to the last and had begun it all over again. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.